You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. They call me Ben. We're joined with our long-suffering super producer, Paul Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. But Ben, you may be asking, where are your trusty co-hosts, Matt Frederick and Noel Brown? Without divulging too much information, I can reveal that they are both on separate secret missions for the time being, but they will return very soon. And I wonder now whether they are traveling by plane, train, or automobile, specifically a Volkswagen. You see, today's episode is about not a conspiracy theory, but an ongoing conspiracy, a cover-up of a global nature. Not just one single incident, not one single year, but a cover-up spanning multiple industries, multiple countries, and multiple years. And what better way to investigate this conspiracy than to call on some help from our longtime friend and recurring guest on the show, ladies and gentlemen, How Stuff Works expert for all things automotive, Scott Benjamin. How do you do, Ben? How do you do? It's good to be back in front of the mic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. um, For some background here, everyone, uh, Scott, you and I, for 
around a decade, a little bit short of a decade, hosted a very different show together uh, called Car Stuff. Yeah, that's right. We had a long, long run, and so we've got a, a, an incredible archive. And one of those topics that we talked about, of course, during that, you know, is nine plus years, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit over nine years. Uh, one of those topics was Volkswagen, uh, you know, uh, somewhere along the way. I don't think we ever covered a full history of Volkswagen, but we did cover the Volkswagen Beetle. We covered the Volkswagen one liter car, you know, some of that stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and I know Volkswagen came up many times in the in the podcast. In fact, I own a Volkswagen. That's true. Yeah, oh. I, cur- I currently own a Volkswagen, not an affected Volkswagen, <laughs> which is lucky, right? Yes, very fortunate. Yeah. And uh, thank you know what? I owe you another thanks for coming on the show because I completely forgot when we when we said, you know, Scott should be our guest for today's episode. Yeah. We completely forgot that you do, in fact, drive a Volkswagen. Yeah, well, again, thankfully not one of the, uh, one of the ones that had to be recalled. But uh, this is an incredible story, one that unfolded in front of uh, the media, in front of the world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there was a cover-up. We'll talk about that for sure. Mm-hmm. And it did span many, many years. And it, it, there was uh, there was inside knowledge of, of this early on. You know, it was, it was known to the company before it was released to the public. I mean, they were definitely trying to hide something. Absolutely. And so for anyone listening to the show who is not uh, specifically a gearhead or doesn't consider themselves a car person – can guarantee that you are going to find some very strange and fascinating things nonetheless. And the story begins, I, I would say the story really begins in the late 1930s. Is that correct? And I, Oh, you're talking about the beginning of Volkswagen. Right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, sure. We could talk about the beginning of Volkswagen. We'll, we'll just uh, kind of like quickly go over this. But one of the most fascinating things, if you look up Volkswagen, and mm-hmm. I, I bet a lot of people don't quite understand this. They might know the tie-in between um, Adolf Hitler and wanting to build what they call the people's car, right? Sure. That would be the Volkswagen Beetle. The bug, yeah. Yeah. He's actually credited as being one of the founders of Volkswagen, if, if you can believe that. I mean, the German labor front who was under the control of Adolf Hitler at the time. So you'll find that Adolf Hitler is listed as one of the founders of Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. Interesting fact, I thought. But I mean, this starts in what, 1937, I believe, is when uh, Volkswagen became a, an official mark. Right. Yeah. Headquartered in Wolfsburg, Germany. Mm-hmm. And that that's the the name uh, Volkswagen Werk was uh, just meant the people's car company, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, the idea was to create something that the people could afford, that people could drive, that people could, uh, you know, easily get their hands on. But it was also. Uh, strictly controlled by the government, as you can imagine. It was something that, you know, the the direction was coming down from, uh, you know, people that really didn't have – how do I want to put this, Ben? It wasn't wasn't necessarily um, designed in a a purely creative environment. It was somebody who was dictating what had to happen in that car. Like, this is the way we want it. This is the way it has to be. Right. They were building to a list of constraints. Exactly right. Yeah. And the the funny thing is, like, the, with the Volkswagen and even the start of the company, I mean, if you notice the timing, uh, we're talking about 1937, this is the onset of World War II. Mm-hmm. And so there was going to be a delay in production until after that. So very few Volkswagen Beetles, even though they were designed ahead of time, uh, you know, ahead of ahead of World War II, uh, they were not really widely delivered until after World War II, um, right. because there's the gap that gap in production because they shifted over to become um, a war machine, which happened with multiple manufacturers, not just on the Axis side but on the, the Allied side as exactly. well. Exactly, both sides of the ocean. Yeah, that was happening everywhere. Is that you know, car production pretty much halted during World mm-hmm. War II. 
And shameless plug, we have a pretty interesting series of episodes about that on carstuffshow.com, available for free. Huge archive. It's actually, we we have a lot of stuff on that. So let's move a little bit further ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, you look around at Volkswagen's today and you see how popular they are, right? Drive drive in any major metropolitan area and you're bound to see several of different years, different different models, et cetera. Sure. But you have to ask yourself, all right, this is this is a Nazi car, right? How did this not no offense, Scott, how did this <laughs> how did this Nazi car become uh, so popular here in the United States? Because initially sales were lower for two fronts, or for two reasons, rather. One was the association with Germany. Yeah. And the second was that the car was seen, I don't want to say seen like a twerp, but it was smaller and it had a differing different form, you know, it was more rounded Sure, than people were used to. Yeah, rear engine, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it had a couple of different things going against it, I guess, as far as, uh, you know, its its sale in America. Uh, because, you know, we, at the time, we were in love with, you know, the giant vehicles, you know, oh, the, yeah. the great big, uh, the lead sleds, you know, the, the time, you know, the, the <laughs> right. huge steel vehicles that were enormous. They were, uh, you know, 20 feet long, had giant V8 engines. It was just a, a different... Uh, thing altogether, really. And and it was tough to convince people until about, well, you know what? Actually, we, again, we have another podcast about this, but, you know, <laughs> the the officers that came back from World War II uh, had kind of fallen in love with the British sports cars. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the, uh, the small vehicle, you know, maybe that only sat two people, sometimes four, but, you know, it was a very small convertible vehicle, sporty. Um, and that trend started to take off and, and really become popular in the, in the 60s, I guess, is when, you know, they were doing a little bit of both. They were making some big cars. They were making some small cars, mm-hmm. kind of uh, and experimenting with, you know, where we're going to import cars from because these are popular. And, um, you know, the Volkswagen Beetle kind of fits snugly in there, but it wasn't until probably, what, the early – or late 1960s, early 1970s yeah. that the Beetle really, really took off and, here in the United States. And shot off like a rocket. Yeah, and the reason was because of the uh, the oil embargo. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that in the geopolitical and uh, the domestic circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is at a time where in – Gas prices are skyrocketing for mm-hmm. the average person, right? Sure. And a big uh, land yacht or what you would call a lead sled engine is, you know, it's it's going to be a notoriously thirsty beast, mm-hmm. right? It's not quite like an Abrams tank. We're not talking gallons per mile, but you're gonna you're gonna be paying a lot in fuel even when prices are normal. It was pretty close to gallons per mile. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. were not. Uh, Eco-friendly. No. That wasn't even a term people would apply at the time. Yeah. But a smaller car with a smaller engine like the Bug is going to be uh, suddenly much more attractive. And we've seen a similar thing happen when gas prices spiked uh, several years back and a bunch of people – Realized they didn't like their H2s that much. Remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. Those Hummers? Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So this is all happening in the early 1970s. I'll say, I think it was 1973 was really the first crunch mm-hmm. for us here. Mm-hmm. And uh, then later in 1979, the same thing happened again. So throughout the 70s, really, mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a push to 
uh, create smaller, more efficient vehicles. And, and Volkswagen had a vehicle that was ready-made for this. You know, they imported the vehicle and it was, wi- you know, wildly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it had a hu- it had a long, long run, didn't it? I mean, it was was it uh, second after – I can't remember. Was it first or second? I think it was uh, after the Model T. I think as far it's as- – I think it might be second. Let's see, because in 1972, they had already surpassed 15 – million vehicles. Wait, so that would make them first. Yeah, that's right. That, right. that would make them first. Yeah, because they were produced well into the 19, uh, I want to say 1990s even, in yeah. Mexico, I think. And the Model um, T was what, 1908 to uh, 1927? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So this this is an enormously popular vehicle. It recovers from a, a stigma associated with one of its original founders, <laughs> Adolf Hitler. Yeah. That's still the most baffling thing. Well, you know, let's let's move on past that, though, because this isn't just we're we're talking about a a group of of, um, manufacturers of marks really now at this point. It's not just Volkswagen. So we're talking about Audi, Porsche, Lamborghini, Bentley, Bugatti. These are all owned under uh, the parent company of Volkswagen. So Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, there are other automobiles that we don't necessarily see here in the United States. There's uh, in Spain, there's the seat brand, which makes automobiles and auto parts. Uh, There's Scania, which is in Sweden. That makes commercial trucks. Mm There is the Mann company, M-A-N, which is in Germany, and they also make commercial trucks and engines. And then there's Skoda, which is from the Czech Republic, and they make automobiles as well. So Volkswagen is this enormous worldwide company that produces millions of cars a year. We might not see as many here in the United States as, as they do elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's still big numbers. They're they're a, a popular company here in the United States. I want to say they're like the number nine seller of vehicles right right now, I think. I looked up the number yesterday and I believe they're number nine wow. um, in the United States. Um, and that's a, you know, a leap ahead of where they were, let's say, 20 years ago. Uh, 20 mm-hmm. years ago, they were selling, you know, just It's probably tens of thousands still, uh, but now they're selling hundreds of thousands of vehicles in the United States, if not, you know, over a million at this point. So, um, and again, that encompasses all their brands. Now, I know some of the smaller, you know, I shouldn't say smaller, but some of the uh, Mm -hmm. more boutique type cars, I guess, you know, the Lamborghinis, the Bentleys, the Bugattis, they sell less, of course. Their their primary, if you want to call it bread and butter, I guess, would be the Volkswagen brand, Audi brand, and even, I'll I'll say even Porsche, because they sell a lot of cars here. That's true. Yeah. I, I would say that. Yeah. And strictly speaking in the U.S. And we're we're establishing here that this is not a I don't know I don't know what we call it. This is not a, a cottage industry. This is not like a this is not a the rarefied air of high performance exotic cars. Like yeah. this is not McLaren doing something sure. uh, of of this nature. So we have this we have this massive car manufacturer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We're talking millions of cars. We're talking billions of dollars. And then, of course, we're talking about the the law, right? Because just the same way that the original VW Beetle was built according to a set of constraints, all vehicles in developed countries must conform to certain sets of standards. And this includes – Everything from, you know, the uh, the presence of airbags to brake standards, like when you apply a brake, to things like uh, collapsible joints, you mm-hmm. know, used sure. in place of an accident. Uh, one of the big complaints you hear from a lot of 
uh, a high-performance car enthusiast is that these safety regulations primarily add weight mm-hmm. in their opinion. Right? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, to a lot of people, it's a lot of nonsense. Sure. Uh, but to other people, it's a necessity. You, know, you have to have these things in order to produce and, mm-hmm. and sell a vehicle in the United States or in uh, the European Union or in the China market or you know, wherever, wherever you're talking about. You have a certain market that you have to target for certain things. You know, and emissions is one of those things. They have cars that are uh, U.S. emissions um, compliant mm-hmm. and they have cars that are European emissions client, uh, compliant. Rather. And uh, th- those are two separate things. They're, it's different systems. And I'll tell you, I found this out. I was, I was kind of fascinated by this when I read this and I, I didn't quite understand this, but someone had described it in this way is that um, I guess what we're talking about is different types of uh, exhaust gases that come out of the tailpipe, really. And and what comes out of there, it, it's uh, it's mandated by the government agencies that are that are in charge here. So in the United States, it's the EPA that's in charge of, of um, making sure that, you know, the vehicles are compliant to whether it's, you know, the country, the state, or even the county or the city that mm-hmm. we're in, because it does vary uh, state by state in that way. Sometimes it's just the county that you're in. Because um, here in Georgia, uh, just because we're in the county that Atlanta is in, you know, the, the main city, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the capital city, um, we are we are required to get emissions tested every every single year. Every, uh, you know, once a year around your birthday, you have the emissions tested, then it's, it's when you get your tag renewal and all that. Mm-hmm. But if you're outside of that area, they don't care. There's no emissions testing. Uh, it's different from, you know, by state by state. Some states, the entire state is it's necessary. Other states, it's just certain areas like what we have here in Georgia. Um, and then some of them have, you know, gear exclusions. Like, you know, if your car is older than a certain age, it doesn't have sure. to be tested. And some of them, you know, the first four years, you don't have to have your car tested because it's a brand new car, which all this seems very arbitrary, I understand. But it's it, but these are rules that are um, refined state by state. Uh, mm-hmm. So, that, you know, there's one overlaying rule from the government that says, you know, it, to, in order to buy or to import and sell cars here in the United States, you have to meet these mandates. And the same thing with the European Union, except it's a set of directives that come down from, uh, you know, from their leadership. You know, it's a little more centralized. A, exactly right. Yeah. So they have a more standardized system for, for all of the European Union, really. And of course, like any large manufacturer, Volkswagen has hundreds and hundreds of people whose sole job in the organization is to make sure that these cars meet these standards. Yeah. And just so I'm clear on this, I mean, the U.S. and the uh, European Union have different air pollution standards. So yeah. just take, for example, the U.S. standards are kind of strict on nitrogen oxides, which is, you'll see it abbreviated as NOx, and then particulate matter. Well, the European standards are more strict on carbon dioxide, which is CO2, and carbon monoxide. So in other words, European regulators are focused on like fuel efficiency and they try to limit the dependency on crude oil from Russia and the Middle East. Well, mm-hmm. um, and, and on greenhouse gas emissions, of course, you know, and of course, climate change plays into all this. But on the other hand, American regulators are more focused on smog and the health impacts of the air pollution. So uh, they have different standards based on what they're trying to uh, trying to achieve uh, you know, for their air quality, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's not a crazy story. That all seems on the up and up. So what happens when things start to go wrong? We'll answer this after a word from our sponsor. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. 
For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back. Before the break, Scott, you and I explained some of the history of Volkswagen, uh, the size of the organization, a, a couple numbers, uh, and uh, we also looked at their interaction with various governments. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lean too hard on the uh, on the Nazi history. It's it's just a real thing, and you can fall down that rabbit hole if you wish, folks. Sure. Uh, yeah. But you know, we 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 painted the scene. We've provided the backdrop. Now, I would I, I now I'd like to ask you about the timeline that applies here. When do things start going wrong with Volkswagen? Okay, so we didn't hear about this until right around 2015, right? Yeah, September I, 2015. Yeah, this is a couple of years ago, maybe th- almost three years ago at this point, and uh, you know. People would probably be surprised to learn that this actually began. If you really want to get down to the uh, you know the the root cause of this whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, it started around 1999, which is crazy. Yeah. So yeah. what what happens? All right. So in 1999, they're they're brand new U.S. rules. Now they call them Tier Two rules, which I think they have updated to Tier Three at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about. Um, uh, the uh, the limits decreasing on what's allowed, you know, for exa- exhaust gas emissions. So we're talking about nitrogen oxides, things like, um, you know, nitric oxide and nitrogen dioxide, and mm-hmm. they're usually produced by the combustion of fuel, right? So the, the limits were decreasing from, um, I believe it's one gram uh, per million to something like 0. 0.07 gram per million. Okay, and so. so- yeah. So it's a significant reduction. It, it is. Yeah, it's it's reducing. And uh, and because of that, there has to be kind of a phase-in period when they allow, um, you know, manufacturers to adjust to this, to, you mm-hmm. know, try to make their cars run a little bit more efficient, run a little bit more lean, I suppose, right? Um, the problem with that is, and as we'll find out, is that uh, you want to kind of have a balance between performance, of course, because people want performance in their car. They don't want to be a, a just an absolute dog on the road, of course. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to have uh, a vehicle that is just spewing emissions, you know, because it, it takes more fuel probably in most cases to go faster, right? You're trying to get sure. the most efficiency out of that fuel. And sometimes that requires burning more fuel. In fact, all the time that requires burning <laughs> more fuel, right? right. Uh, but you're trying to do that in a way that, you know, you can filter, you can, you know, run it as lean as possible while still maintaining this balance between uh, performance and fuel economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the that's the idea. Oh, we should also point out those those nitrogen oxides we're mentioning. Think of those as some of the key ingredients in air pollution. So these are the gases that are instrumental in the formation of stuff like acid rain or smog. Yeah, and I'll tell you that this is difficult to do because it, they give you know they give the manufacturers ten years. Mm-hmm. in order to conform to this. So they've got 10 years from 1999. So let's say 2009 is when these new standards are supposed to take place, right? They're going to mm-hmm. phase them in. So uh, throughout the uh, 2000s, you know, to, uh, let's say 2004 through about 2009, um, there's this, uh, this diesel emissions change as well. It's not just gasoline, it's diesel as well. So um, in 2007, Volkswagen officially suspended the sales of, of the current diesel lines and they were waiting for new technology standards to come through. Right. They're, they're developing new product is what they're doing really. They also uh, – this is also around the time that the European Union banned something – 
that was uh, pretty common in this diesel testing thing. Mm -hmm. And that was something called a defeat device. Ah, yes. Okay. Now, the defeat device will come up later, I'm sure. But the defeat device is nothing that is exclusive to Volkswagen. I think we should just state that up front. Uh, That might also be kind of a a shocker to people is that uh, these defeat devices are are known to exist uh, for other companies. In fact, I've seen, uh, I think it's Renault, Suzuki. There were other companies that were mentioned that um, I'll be able to find it here in just a second my notes, but um, the defeat devices really are there to save the car, save the engine, really. Right. Um, that's, the, that's the primary purpose of them. It's so that if, you know, the, the, the car itself kind of figures out that something's not going right, uh, you know, that it's not, uh, it's not operating in the right temperature range. It's not, you know, there's something, a load on the vehicle that shouldn't be there. Yeah. It's not going to destroy itself. It's, it's going to, in some way, save itself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to try to self-preserve, I guess. Try to at least and, mitigate the damage. And what we're talking about is, is a software situation. It's not, yeah. it's not a mechanical thing. It's an electronic thing. Mm-hmm. It's going to either increase, decrease fuel as necessary. It's going to, you know, it's going to create a uh, condition, I guess, that's more favorable to the engine. And in 2007, the European Union finally introduced a rule for car makers that said, you gotta, you got to stop using this defeat device mm-hmm. loophole because what they were doing with the software, which as, as you said, Scott, was de- designed to preserve an engine, what they were doing instead was using it to cheat on these tests. It would manipulate emissions and therefore performance, right? Or yeah. performance and therefore emissions depending on whether the car was – on the what they would call the test stand, mm-hmm. where, where you test the performance and see if it meets emission standards, versus driving actually driving on the road. Sure. So, you know the the fancy insider automotive term for this, and I don't want to get too into jargon, is cheating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what was going on. I mean, and the other company that was listed, I, I mentioned, I think, Renault and Suzuki, but Hyundai also was known to have defeat devices that they've used in the past. And again, that's to prevent engine damage at certain temperatures. So um, it makes sense that, you know, they would have something in place like that. But again, when you use that, when you switch that on, that's that's the uh, the deceptive part here. So uh, let's go back to 2007. All right. Uh, so So again, Defeat devices, not exclusive to Volkswagen. A lot of places are using them. A lot of people are using them. Uh, Manufacturers, I mean by people, of course. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Not people. Um, So it's nothing mechanical, really, just all electronic. Mm -hmm. So back in 2007, I guess, there was talk of Volkswagen using this to uh, kind of uh, skew the numbers a little bit, you know, and and Bosch, I guess, who is a um, an engineering and electronics company in Stuttgart, Germany. A lot of people have heard of Bosch, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a supplier uh, yeah, of automotive components. They allegedly warned Volkswagen not to use their software, Bosch software, illegally. So, you know, they had they knew they had control. They could manipulate the software uh, how they wanted. But they said in 2007, please don't you know, do that in order to conform to these new standards. There's a better way around this. You know, do it in a different manner. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, <laughs> just a year later, Volkswagen announces that it has clean diesel cars. Now, I think we've probably all heard clean diesel. And this is right around when a lot of people really changed their mind about diesel in the United States. It wasn't something that uh, was known as a as a dirty vehicle, polluting vehicle. Right. Because prior to then, you know, when you think of diesel cars, you think of cars that, you know, trucks, cars that mm-hmm. were uh, terribly smoky and they just smelled bad all the time mm-hmm. and they were just uh, 
Everything about them was different. I mean, they operate differently internally. Uh, they're tougher to start. In, they're in tougher to. They're they're tougher to accelerate. Yeah, it's just not. It wasn't something that was part of uh, uh, American culture, I guess, if you want to put it that way. There's certain <laughs> there's certain uses for diesel vehicles, but it was primarily commercial, right? Uh, it was primarily people that you know long long haul truckers and uh, you know people that were using diesel equipment around um, I don't know tree nurseries or something like that. You know, they were using an equipment, not necessarily in their on the road on-the-road cars. Sure. Even though they were out there, they were kind of few and far between at that point. But now, in 2008, Volkswagen's got this clean diesel. And I remember that, uh, you know, Mercedes came out with clean diesel. And a lot of places like to claim that they have clean diesel cars. And of course, you're not going to have any problem with emissions, right? No. None at all. And you're going to have all the performance that you want. Things are going to be even better than you could imagine. going to drive just like a gasoline-powered car. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. No problems at all. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So the problem here is that around 2008, cars with uh, what we'll call the test rigging software uh, were starting to be sold in the United Kingdom. And they know that. They know that in 2008, they were still using this defeat device in order to kind of get around the emissions controls uh, uh, that were happening over in the European Union. And then in 2009, uh, this is when the Volkswagen TDI cars officially went on sale in the United States. Now, in Europe, some of the models are also being described as um, – Euro emissions class five vehicles. And, you know, they have all these classes that they like to say that we're compliant to, you know, and and that will change throughout the years. I don't know if we want to keep up with that in this discussion, really, because I think it just kind of gets lost in the weeds somewhere. But Mm -hmm. um, around 2009 is when these TDI cars, you know, the cars that all, they all have a little badge, TDI. Those are the ones that are considered to be clean diesel cars were sold here in the United States. Um, And then I guess... You know, from around what? I guess from 2009, right when they were introduced until about 2015, that's the key date, right? 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like there was really a, a big movement. A lot of people really liked their diesel cars. They, they didn't have a problem finding the gas at gas stations because, you know, more stations were carrying it now because there's this influx of cars that, that need to require diesel fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't fill it up with gasoline, of course. So right. there's that. You know, it's, it's just an easier vehicle to, uh, uh, to be able to fuel than was, you know, like back when you had to go to a truck stop somewhere on the highway in order to get fuel. Uh, now you could go to practically any gas station and, and fuel up, and you were getting the performance that you wanted out of it. It was just like your gasoline-powered car. Mm-hmm. Um, they're brand new. You know, they're, they're something that at the time was, uh, um, you know, economical, I guess. Um, sure. You know, they they were fuel efficient. You had it all, really. Until. <laughs> That's a long pause, yeah. Until. I, I was, yeah. <laughs> it was a little dramatic there. Uh, and, until um, people started – Comparing notes. Yeah. And we'll get to that after a word from our sponsor. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Here's where it gets crazy. So, as we said at the beginning of the show, 2015 is sort of a a harbinger of things to come, right? Yeah. So, here's here's what's happening during this time and the years leading up to this moment. As as we said earlier, different Different states, different countries, different counties within states all have differing 
standards, right? Yeah, sure. And and largely a lot of the the testing is going to be the same. It's just uh, where they set the bar for passing or failing. Yeah. And what they're testing for, right? Yeah. So here in the United States, one of the one of the states with more stringent standards would be California. Sure. In the automotive world, California is very well known for having uh, emissions standards and uh, pollution standards that are ho- significantly higher sure. than other states. They have a group called CARB, which is the California Air Resource Board. Mm-hmm. And uh, how many times in the past did you just – Remember back uh, a couple decades, if you will. Sure. Uh, think about like watching cars being given away on The Price Is Right, or you know one of the uh, one of the game shows. How many times did you see them say when they're giving away a car, they would say that it's carb certified or it has California emissions? Right. California emissions was a, a thing, and I, I don't know. I think it kind of still is, but that includes more states at this point. Now there are other states that have matched what California has done. So at the time, it was just them. But they had much stricter restrictions on uh, – is that, that what stricter restrictions, I yeah, guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine. I guess they um, they, were, they were very uh, specific in saying that, you know, it's, it's definitely got California emissions. It's California Air Resource Board um, authenticated, you know, that uh, this is one that, that complies to that. Absolutely. And at the time, that meant that you could drive this car anywhere. Yeah, sure you could. If you could drive it through California, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? You're, yeah, I mean, you're good to go you could, anywhere. You could take a car out of there, but if you were to move into California with another vehicle oh, and have boy. to have it tested, yeah. you would likely have to add a bunch of hardware in order to make your car uh, you know, as clean as the cars that were meant to be sold in California. Yeah, you know, and at some points during that time, people moving to California would just sell their car. Yeah. Yeah, it happened. And, you know, now there are many other states that have kind of followed suit with California mm-hmm. in their same strict uh, – well, again, strict restrictions right. on uh, on um, exhaust gases. So in 2014, the year before the S hits the F, if we're going to keep it as a family show, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, the year before the Badgers pop out of the bag, CARB, the California Air Resource Board – is studying discrepancies that they've found between European and U.S. models of vehicles, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And they take three different sources uh, for 15 vehicles and they find something – they find something uh, not quite rotten in the state of Denmark yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they find something smelling a little ripe because several scientists, I believe, went in West Virginia – uh, said, hey, there's something up with the diesel cars. Yeah. Because we had three that we tested and what they're showing us on the road is vastly different. They're much, much dirtier than the test would indicate or than the auto manufacturers have promised. So what's really unusual about this is that you could take those same three vehicles that you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, it, just random vehicles that they selected and, and put them into a test bay and measure the emissions and everything will turn out fine. They will certify as, you know, no, no problem at all. It's, it's uh, emissions compliant. You take that same vehicle and you attach mobile uh, um, technology to it, I guess, you know, something that is a, uh, that, that can test the vehicle while it's on the road, while it's driving. And they were finding that these cars were emitting sometimes 40 times the amount of uh, permitted levels of nitrogen oxides. 40 times. 40 times the amount. So what is happening during these, uh, during these testing procedures? Is it, is it an accident? Is it somehow just these individual cars, right? Did something fail on these cars? That's yeah. the first question. Is there a defect? Yeah, sure. And you might 
you know, be scratching your head, like, why would they go to West Virginia to check this out? They went to West Virginia University, where they have something called the Center for Alternative Fuels, Engines, and Emissions. So they have something that's called, confusingly enough, CAFE, which is with an ex- <laughs> with an with an extra E, not CAFE standards, but with an extra E. Cafe and cafe standards, just by way of reference, are a uh, a set of regulations that all that cars have to obey in the United States. Yeah, this goes back to what we were talking about in 1999 when they've got 10 years to comply to this, uh, you know, uh, an overall fuel economy for your fleet of vehicles. Um, more on that on car stuff if you want to go to it. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> but uh, um, so the idea was they were actually trying to do something. Nice here, I guess. They were trying to uh, figure out, you know, some of the benefits, I guess, of U.S. diesel technology and hoping mm-hmm. to have Europe kind of follow along with that and 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 see if they could achieve the same uh, low levels of, of um, nitrogen oxides em- mm-hmm. for emissions. And instead, they found something different. They found these discrepancies, I guess, between, uh, you know, the on-road emissions versus what was being published as, you know, the uh, the fuel standards or the uh, the emission standards, I guess, for diesel engines here in the United States. It just The numbers weren't matching up for uh, the West Virginia University researchers. In any shape, fashion, or form. And no, 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 no. Exactly right. So they, they did publish this. They published mm-hmm. their findings. And the thing is, the, the publication, you know, they didn't want to say anything to Volkswagen directly, of course, because you don't, you don't talk about that kind of thing, I guess. You don't accuse them of what they thought was happening even this early on, you know, in 2014. Right. It could still all be a mistake. So they did publish these publicly. You know, they said that, uh, you know, here's, here's, you know, what we found. Mm -hmm. And this got the attention of the EPA here in the United States. And unwanted attention. Unwanted attention. Yes, the United States Environmental Protection Agency uh, in September 2015, they issue a notice of violation of what's called the Clean Air Act Mm -hmm. to Volkswagen, to the Volkswagen Group. And they're the ones who levy the first accusation. They say, Volkswagen, you have intentionally programmed diesel engines to cheat on these tests, to activate emission controls during lab tests, that which, which affects the output of the oxides that, Scott, you and I mentioned earlier, to meet these testing standards just while they're in the bay. They're giving them a chance, though. They're saying, here's what we found. What's your explanation for why it's happening? You know, tell us what happened. Is it, is it a mistake? Is this, is this a genuine mistake? Uh, because this is not the, uh, you know, the real world situation that we're finding with your vehicles. You know, in a, in a test situation, it's one thing. In the real world, it's something completely different. Tell us what's happening here. You know, we want to talk to the engineers that, that helped work on this. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's someone you don't want to have knocking on your door is the EPA uh, when you are in charge of, a, you know, the diesel engine program. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about some of the people that were involved in this later. I mean, there's a, a few people that uh, wind up in the fallout of this whole thing. But um, so the timing of this is uh, is interesting because you would think that Volkswagen – now, they denied this right up to the very end. I mean, they, it, sure. they really did put it off. And you would think they would just say, hey, you caught us. You know, like, I mean, but I, I don't know, Scott, is well, this a my bad situation? I don't, you know what? I don't know. I mean, which one would have been better? Because here's what happened. They, the EPA gave them a chance. They said, we're, we're telling you right now that these cars are not CARB, not EPA uh, certified. They're, sure. they're not satisfying our standards. So why don't you tell us what you're going to do to ch- change this? F- so for a year, right? Yeah, yeah. For a year, they say uh, technical glitches, technical yeah. difficulties. We're working on it. Right. And the uh, CEO at the time was a fellow named Martin Winterkorn. 
And they they kept this line up. They doubled down. They committed to the bit, as you would say, in comedy. And they did a uh, they did their best impression of a company that wasn't committing crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in September again, we're still in September of of 2015. Mm-hmm. The EPA threatened to not certify any of the 2016 diesel engines that Volkswagen was going to sell. So they said. Um, <laughs> You know what are you going to do? I mean, we're not going. We're not going to allow you to sell these cars in the United States. You're mm-hmm. going to lose out on hundreds of thousands of sales. Right. Volkswagen finally responds to the EPA, not to the public, but to the EPA by admitting that the software was programmed to cheat testing. Now, this is September 3rd of 2015. Mm-hmm. By September 18th, now, so that's 15 days later. So they had more than two weeks mm-hmm. for Volkswagen to come out with a statement. You know, whatever they whatever they wanted to say and to kind of you know gloss this thing over. Right. They didn't do it. The EPA actually comes out. The, uh, there's a public service announcement from the EPA that orders the recall of all 2009 through 2015 cars that are equipped with this uh, this TDI engine here in the United States. And it wasn't until the 20th of September, so two days after the EPA announces this, that Volkswagen finally admits this deception and issues a public apology. Mm-hmm. So they were given uh, practically a month. We're talking about practically a month where Volkswagen could have come out on the early side of this. I think they were kind of calling the EPA's bluff, I think. Mm-hmm. Almost like, uh, you know, are they going to say anything? Are they not going to do it? I'm sure that they were telling them that they were going to. Right. Uh, um, I don't know. It's just a confusing time right around September of, of uh, 2015. So Volkswagen CEO Martin Winterkorn says – I personally am deeply sorry that we have broken the trust of our customers and the public. And he was in charge from 2008 to 2015 when I believe he resigned. So throughout the whole thing, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was his yeah. ship. Well, production, I guess, throughout the production of the whole thing. He called it the terrible mistakes of a few people. Hmm. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> right, right, Okay, right. yeah. But you know what? Okay, so this is another big question is is – who knew? You know, how far up the chain did they uh, did they notify somebody that this was happening? Did he really know? Did he not know? Uh, you know, that's that's another thing. Is that it was a, a secret that was kept from him? You're like, hey, Wintercorn, we've got some uh, some fantastic news. Our our TDI diesels or our diesel engines rather are certified in the United States, and we got all the performance we wanted out of them, and we got the mileage that we wanted out. Right. Of them. And did yeah. he just clap twice and say, "Great job, guys. Yeah. That's lunch." <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't think he had any questions, any follow up questions about you know how that was possible, mm-hmm. and uh, you know some of the struggles that they had had in the past. So um, I don't know. I, I I feel like he did know something. I mean, I, I really. I genuinely do. But three days later, okay, so uh, we should say this, stock went down immediately the uh, next day. By a third. Yeah. Easily. Went, went way down the very next business day. And uh, Volkswagen was uh, was said that they were going to they were gonna spend, I think it was like $7.5 billion, I think, yeah. uh, to cover the, the, uh, uh, the cost of the scandal, like, you know, for the recall, I guess. Because at this point, we're really just talking about a recall. It's nothing more. Um, I shouldn't say nothing more, like I'm downplaying it, but it's it's huge. This is a great big recall. Um, Wintercorn resigns. He's, I remember, CEO. He resigns just three days after the announcement Mm -hmm. is made to the public. And so on September 23rd of 2015, he's out and someone brand new is in. And Volkswagen then just a week later announced that they were going to refit up to 11 million vehicles that were affected by these uh, emissions, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the defeat devices, I guess. But, so, but they're still doing damage control. We have to interject because their new CEO <laughs> is a guy named Matthias, Matthias Mueller. And he says, 
Okay, hold on, guys. The software was only activated in a part of those 11 million cars. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure it was. So it smacks damage control, but you can't blame people. Of course, that's what they would do. But now other countries are involved, yeah, right? Sure. So this, this has expanded beyond the United States, beyond, you know, Germany, and it's become known as Diesel Gate. Mm-hmm. And one of the strangest things about this story, Scott, is that it continues to unfold. So mm-hmm. by the time our episode comes out, there will almost certainly be new developments in in the mix. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just the uh, not just the vehicles that we've talked about. I mean, there were two liter vehicles, there were three liter vehicles. It it, it uh, encompassed Volkswagen, it encompassed Audi, uh, Porsche was involved. They have a diesel engine as well um, in the in their Cayenne model. So it encompasses a lot of different. Uh, Parts of the company itself, you know, it's not just the one mark. It's not just Volkswagen. It's it's mm. at least three other companies um, that, that are being um, forced. I guess, I, I should, yeah, it's sure. actually forced because they're not going to do this voluntarily, really. Right. I mean, but they're being forced to to make good on this. And there's a, a couple of programs that they set up, and you know, in order to make things right. So Volkswagen set up what they call the, the Volkswagen TDI goodwill package. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of back and forth emails between dealerships and, and owners, I'm sure, and, and messages. Uh, but essentially, um, you can you can go online, you can check your balance. You know, you, you enter your VIN number, you see if your vehicle's affected, that type right. of thing. You know, you search to make sure yours is one of these. And then uh, you can check like your – they give you a loyalty card, I think, mm-hmm. is one of the things that they do. Uh, they, they One that is, uh, you know, it has cash on it. Another one is good only at the dealership, and then I mm-hmm. think another one was a uh, there's like a buyback program uh, where you can you know trade in your vehicle, you can terminate your lease, and you know there's a lot of different uh, variances between um, you know what happens based on what vehicle you have and mm-hmm. what they allow. And that's a terrible way to describe that. Oh, I'm sorry. No, there's, no. If you go onto the site, I, I think it's called. Um, uh, I think it's called vwdieselinfo.com. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't have one of these, you can kind of find out what was made available to the owners there. Right, right. And if you do happen to have a Volkswagen, it is well worth your time to check if you haven't yet to see whether your vehicle was affected mm-hmm. by this scandal, by this diesel gate. And here on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, one of the things that we often run into is corporate malfeasance, right? That's what this is. Yeah. And – the questions that we always return to are sadly the same and the primary question is always going to be what happens to those responsible? Are there any consequences for these actions? And to the average consumer, regardless of which country they reside in, mm-hmm. it often seems that the so-called uh, the, the fat cats or the titans of industry rarely have to – face the music. Yeah, they're not held accountable. They're, they're not held accountable, yeah. Uh, in this case, as legal proceedings continue, uh, we can we can tell you that in uh, several instances, people have been personally um, convicted or, or punished for this. Yeah, very recently. Very recently, yes, yeah. Scott. In uh, December of 2017, mm-hmm. someone actually went to prison. Sure. Not just someone, uh, six people. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, in fact, one was here from the United States, um, Oliver Schmidt. He was arrested in Florida and that was very recently. That was again in uh, December – did you say December of 2017 I think? Mm-hmm. And then there were six other – I'm sorry, five others I believe. So we're talking about six 
top executives that have gone to jail or prison over this. This this is pretty unusual at this level in a corporation. You know, they've been charged. I'm not sure that they've actually been uh, sentenced at this point, but they've been charged. So Volkswagen employees that were charged, Mm. uh, there was Heinz Jacob Neusser, who was, he oversaw the development of the company's brand. There was Jens Hadler, I believe that's Jens, J-E-N-S, mm-hmm. Jens Hadler, uh, who oversaw, oversaw the engine development program. And there's Richard Dorenkamp, uh, who was another supervisor of the engine development. And then there was uh, Bernard Gottwies, uh, who helped oversee the quality management. And then there's Jurgen Peter, uh, who was a liaison between regulatory agencies and the car maker themselves. So mm-hmm. uh, these are top executives. They're, they're the top of the game here. Right. And they're being held accountable for what happened. And uh, you know, this is a lot of people say, well, finally, finally, you know, we're getting some justice out of this. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, a lot of times something like this happens and you don't hear of anybody really um, taking, taking, um, I guess, taking responsibility for this. Right. They're not taking charge of the situation saying, yeah, that was my decision. Let me, let me uh, clarify the timeline here because I said December of 17, mm-hmm. 2017, that is when um, – Schmidt is sentenced. So these charges are probably a little bit earlier. Oh, probably months earlier. Yeah. He was originally looking at 169 years in prison, Scott, on 11 felony counts. So they don't take this lightly, do they? I mean, this is something very serious. And and I don't know if we've even said this number yet, but, you know, we've talked, we've thrown around a few numbers of what this is going to cost VW, right? Yeah. In the end. And, you know, they were talking early on about per vehicle charges. And I think it was like 30 they could be fined something like this is just here in the United States $37,500 per vehicle that they sold in the United States that's more than a lot of those vehicles cost to begin with brand yeah, new yeah. so it's a, it's a healthy fine i mean it's a very big fine and it, they were talking in the billions of dollars and you know every day it seemed like there was more and more bad news coming mm-hmm. out in the end this whole thing you know with uh, with the penalties and everything mm-hmm. um, they're finding out that this is going to end up costing the company something like $21 billion. $21 billion. Billion. With a B. With a B. With a B. That's right. And, you know, I think there's something like, you know, $4.3 billion of that is in just uh, criminal and civil penalties. Mm. But then the rest of that is in what the company has to do, you know, either retrofitting the cars, either sure. uh, buying back the cars, giving out these, these, uh, these courtesy cards. I forget what I call them, loyalty cards, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it, it's really, really expensive for them. But more than $20 billion is what this is going to cost the company. And more than that, this has cost this company uh, their reputation. Oh, yeah. Volkswagen has been, if you, if you paid attention to any of their, their public announcements recently, mm-hmm. you know, gone to any of the websites, this is, this is something that has just cut them to the core. They don't, they don't know what to do because they want to retain the people that they have already, that already believed in them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those people won't buy another Volkswagen. They, they don't find that they can trust the company. And, and that's something that's really hard is to earn that respect back again. Which is a, which is a, a crying shame. Uh, so two points. First, on a personal note. I really like Volkswagens. I do too. And and I you know, I'm I'm wondering if now would be the time for me to grab one because <laughs> I bet I bet I could get a deal. But the second point is that this this huge cost that occurs to Volkswagen should mention also hit the individuals who were tried or convicted. So Schmidt was facing 169 years in prison. 11 felony counts for anyone who is confused about why you would hear an individual sentenced to almost 170 years in prison, uh, we can offer some clarity. That's usually – that's often at least 
to make sure the person actually does go to prison. Sure. And serves some sort of time. Yeah, not 169 years, really. We right. Know, we know that. They might not all stick. You know, it's just, it's up <laughs> yeah. in the bar. Yeah. Uh, so he pled guilty and he ended up uh, getting a prison term of seven years hmm. for his guilty plea. That's still pretty stiff. And $400,000 fine. Oh, boy. Wow. Okay. Well, seven years in prison. I mean, that's uh, that's not an easy sentence to uh, uh, to to, uh, to take. You know. I mean, right. if you're you're going from your executive world to prison, uh, it's <laughs> you know that's got to be tough. Right. It's uh, it's it's tough, and it's a consequence yeah. of this action. And yeah. I wonder if the yeah. others are going to follow suit and have similar uh, sentences. Right, right. Uh, I know that some other people are getting convicted or have been convicted, yeah, right? Yeah, the, the other five, I believe, are over in Germany, somewhere in Europe. I'm not sure if it's in, in Germany. They might be in Spain or you know, somewhere else. But uh, yeah, they are likely to see similar, similar charges levied against them. And there's more fallout. In January of 2018, it was revealed that, get this, Scott, uh, Volkswagen was also ex- using uh, primates, using monkeys in vehicle emissions experiments. With uh, the stringent testing laws that a lot of countries have, this is, if not illegal, it's a, a very bad look. So, uh, Oh, yeah. This is, uh, this is not looking good on the face of it at mm-hmm. all. They did this in 2015. They had uh, four-hour-long experiments where they locked uh, Java monkeys, 10 Java monkeys, in these tiny rooms – Filled them with uh, emissions to see, you know, like what would happen. Oh, that's awful, isn't it? I, yeah, hate, awful. I, I hate to hear about stuff like this, but uh, but it seems like the bad news just keeps piling on and piling on. Like when when is it all going to kind of settle? You know, when is it going to be over? Right for Volkswagen. What's the what's the fallout? Yeah. Uh, as we're recording this today, that is an answer that we can only hope to find in the future. Mm-hmm. Sure. But for now, we are going to conclude our examination of the real-life automotive conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, uh, you know, the, the great Volkswagen cover-up. And Scott, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Now, there are a couple of secret projects that you have in the works, which I don't believe we're – I'm looking at Paul here. I don't believe we're at liberty to divulge yet. No, I don't think we are. Not yet. But uh, but I've got something that's keeping me busy for sure yeah. when I'm off mic. Uh, yeah, it's something that's going to be coming out hopefully, uh, you know, let's say midsummer, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, your listeners will find it interesting. We can only tell you that it would truly be a crime not to tune in. Very clever. Hey, I worked on that earlier. <laughs> well, Ben, thanks for having me here today. I really appreciate it. I always love being on the show. Oh. And I, yeah. I hope that, you know, I did the topic justice. I know that, uh, you know, we probably uh, skirted over some issues that mm-hmm. people would like to hear a little bit more about. But that's one of the fascinating things about the story is that there are so many twists and turns and, and angles to look at this mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, you'd be doing yourself a disservice not to deal, delve deeper into the story because what we can cover in an hour is just scraping the surface, really. I mean, we're giving you the high points of it, but really dig into it and find out what's what's going on behind the scenes. And it's fascinating. I would I would also call them the low points. Yeah, I guess so. Well, thanks again for for letting me be here. Oh, likewise. Yeah, the pleasure is ours, sir. And of course, Matt and Noel send their regards on that. Wow, you've got you've got a secret. Matt and Noel are on secret missions. Mm-hmm. 
God knows what Paul's up to. He's he's shaking his head and shrugging here. <laughs> am I am I the last one without secrets? Maybe I, I think you've got your own secrets. I am a pretty sketchy individual, <laughs> uh, but yes, thank you, Scott. And just as importantly, friends and neighbors, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Uh, let us know. Do you drive a Volkswagen? Have you been affected by this? Do you think that? Do you think that the legal actions taken against this company are appropriate? Do you think instead their government's making an example of an auto manufacturer? Yeah, is it too harsh or not harsh enough? Right, exactly. Is there, for lack of a better phrase, is there a, a Goldilocks, you know, zone with this punishment? Uh, and also, what should this be applied to other companies? You know, what are, what are other examples of um, companies that have committed massive fraud like this and have, you know, and, and what happened to their leaders at the time? Yeah, can I add one thing too? Please. Just curiosity with the emissions thing in general. You know, why, why is it that only in Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, we have to have emissions when the rest of Georgia doesn't have to? You're why, real sore you know, about that one. Uh, well, I kind of am because I've lived in places that you don't have to and then uh-huh. across the street you do have to. Oh, yeah. You know, that type of situation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm just curious like what you feel about it on your, you know, personally. You know, yeah. what, what do you think about it? Like do your neighbors have to do it but you don't because you live across the county line? Yeah, and it's not as if the air itself stays within a district. No, exactly. So, you know, is it, is it too arbitrary? Mm-mm. I mean, should it just be, you know, all-encompassing? Should everybody have to adhere to the same standards, or should we just have none? Mm-hmm. I mean, where would that put us? I, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by that whole thing, too. Let us know. You can find the entire Stuff They Don't Want You To Know crew on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. You can also write to us directly via our email. We are conspiracy at HowStuffWorks.com. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.